0: Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Normally you hear me at the end of each episode thanking my Patreon team for all they do. Recently, they helped me edit two entries for a new Bible study I'm writing, and they get to submit questions they want me to ask Israelis and Palestinians when I go to Israel in April. And now that I'm slowly closing out season four of Context Matters, basically to give myself a chance to regroup dream of season five and host some interviews, I can't help but think of this Patreon team all the time. They are the ones who make everything possible. Thank you so much. Our final two conversations in season four are with Dr. Joy Schrader, who is a professor of church history at Capital University, where she teaches undergrad religion courses, and she also teaches courses at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. I love the fact that she's a historian. As I observe the way that we do politics and invasions that are happening and the stories that we choose to preserve all around the world— I'm reminded that there are always more stories to be told. This is especially true in Dr. Schrader's work. She worked with Dr. Marion Taylor, who was here at the podcast table a couple weeks ago. Do you remember? She talked about Ruth and Esther. It was amazing. The two of them published a book called Voices Long Silenced. It just came out about two and a half weeks ago. This is such a valuable and important book. They compiled a long survey of female scriptural interpreters of different denominations, class, and ethnic backgrounds. I'm completely in awe of the patient work they did to pull some of these women out of obscurity, and I'm so grateful that they did it. When people pull off such remarkable works, I'm always curious about why they did it, what motivated them, what kind of background did they have, or what kind of context are they in now that revealed the necessity of digging into archives. You heard Dr. Taylor's story already, so let's listen in on Dr. Schrader's response. Lean
1: in and enjoy the conversation. I grew up in central Wisconsin in a predominantly white community and with some uh, Native American reservations and uh, also individuals who didn't live on the reservation. And that also some of my, um, my father's foster brothers and sister were Native American. My own context and immediate family was German and Danish descent Lutheran. My father was a minister, a Lutheran pastor, and even though we were already you know, three generations from Germany, his German accent came out when he preached. So my sense of God is that God was a lot like my father, kind of like speaking in a loud voice with a German accent or at least a faint German accent from a pulpit. God was authoritative, patriarchal. Uh, My father was very, very kind, but from the pulpit, he was a strong authoritative kind of presence. And there were times where in my head, there was this bundle of kind of masculine voices, male voices who were God, Martin Luther, Saint Paul and my father, and they all intertwined because my father was always quoting the Bible and quoting Martin Luther and had a, a Saint Paul framework. So I ended up having when I went to seminary at Princeton Seminary, I spent some time sort of like sorting out the difference between God and my father. And and right. so and it gave me a much better relationship with both God and my father. So I could become closer <laughs> with my father and more appreciative with uh, of, of God, so that was like a, a piece of it. Um, my mother was primarily the person who tended to the home, but she also was a librarian with some advanced library training, a substitute teacher, and she did genealogy. And so she was the one who loved to go into the archives and dig and find. And so. I'm a Lutheran pastor like my father, I'm lo- and I'm also a historian and a lover of books like my mother. So those pieces of it really feed into my identity as scholar and as pastor. The
0: combination that you were talking about with the male voices, with your father and God and Paul and Luther, mm-hmm. with those dominant voices in your head, how did you even get to seminary? Because those sound like voices that don't, I mean, except for the God part, sounds like voices that kind of keep women away from seminary.
1: Yes. In 1970, Lutherans in America began to ordain women. Now, I had never seen a uh, Lutheran woman pastor or any Lutheran pastor at the point where I felt an internal sense of call around age 16. But prior to that, I was feeling tugs. Lutherans for the previous century had had something called deaconesses. Those were women who wore usually like a black dress or pantsuit or a dress suit and a bow and a bonnet that kind of got uh, scaled back in the 1970s. But a missionary who is a deaconess, came to speak to our little Wisconsin church because she went around to you know speak to all the places that provided uh, monetary support. And I thought, oh, that's what I should be, a uh, deaconess, because it was the only professional religious woman, authoritative religious woman I had seen. And then I came to understand that they that at that time, deaconesses mostly were nurses and school teachers, sometimes medical missionaries. And I knew that that wasn't my call. But around age 16, I thought, I remember I was sitting in church. I was sitting in a pew. My father was leading service. And then I thought, oh, I could preach. I think I should preach. And my father was very affirming of that. He had seen very few Lutheran women pastors either, but he was uh, supportive. And then I... Applied to college, I went to Luther College, uh, a Lutheran college in Northeast Iowa, and someone told me, "You're going to need to know Greek in order to go to seminary." And then someone said, "And it's easier to learn Greek if you've already learned Latin. So I, not even knowing what those things were, Greek or Latin, other you know at least what it was to study them, I declared that as my major when I applied, and then it turned out I loved it. That is amazing.
0: (laughs) What took you into, even when you were in seminary, instead of doing classical biblical studies, doing more of the historical work, was it just that the history always drew your attention?
1: Yes, the history drew my attention. When I was in college as a classics major, something happened to me Back in the 70s, we called it, or it was the 80s at that point, they called it a feminist clique. We might say woke now, but that's something like a realization, a waking up and realizing there's something wrong with the world and we need to do something about it. And what's wrong includes the patriarchy. So I had this experience when I was a sophomore. And so then I thought, I'm going to use my knowledge of Greek and Latin to study the lives of Women in ancient Greek society, and that was my senior thesis. There weren't many writings by Greek women. you know there's the poet Sappho and me, possibly a few other little fragments. but I found I was kind of reading some of the Greek tragedies with a look at kind of reclaiming what is the ideology regarding gender and are there some prehistory things we can find underneath that. So I was just really hooked. And I spent seminary trying to do my best to reclaim all the stories of all the women. And I read everything. There wasn't yet a woman's Bible commentary at that time. So I created my own. I would find every possible article that I could find on women in all the books of the Bible. And I created a binder and it went in canonical order, Genesis, Exodus. And so I would try to find at least one or more articles. And so I had a thick binder that was my women's Bible commentary because that didn't yet exist. What a treasure. I I know, I know. Now there's so much that I can't read everything. I try to read everything, but I can't. And that is such a delight yeah. uh, that I can, you know, like that people are working on things and looking at, you know, like lamentations through trauma studies and then thinking about, you know, what is the, uh, what would be the experience of of women in this? What is the experience of gender? But I really, I'm a historian. I do the biblical work, but I'm also a historian interested in the history of women throughout the ages. So i like interested in prehistoric women and modern women, but kind of settle in in the early, like late antiquity, early Christianity, early Judaism, Middle Ages, and Reformation. And those are kind of my main Areas and as my co author Marion Ann Taylor and I divided the labor, we decided I would do the earlier portion and then she would do the 19th century and forward.
0: The like right at the very beginning of your book, you say that part of what the book is trying to do is restore the works of overlooked or forgotten female scripture mm-hmm. interpreters mm-hmm. and record their names and stories, which I appreciate the fact that their stories get woven into that and all of that as part of the history of biblical interpretation. And a question people might have is why
1: aren't they already there? That is a wonderful question. I think part of the reason they aren't already there is people didn't know that they existed and also didn't care There are times where I will be researching someone, for instance, there's a 16th century woman named Argola von Grumbach, who was sort of aligned with the Lutheran part of the Reformation. At her time, virtually every German-speaking person who had access to pamphlets would have known her name, and in the generation or two after her, she was recorded in the histories, but then she kind of got forgotten and kind of put to the side. So I think there are people who just didn't care. They forgot, and then it's not until someone is looking in, in some archives or at some old manuscripts or some old kind of early printed editions like pamphlets. It's not till then that someone, oh, there was a woman who wrote this. So that's one of the pieces of it. And then sometimes, two works were sort of like deliberately discarded or suppressed, occasionally burned, but usually just not copied.
0: Hmm. I imagine it has to be a challenge to figure out which of those reasons it is. Like were some of these women who wrote pamphlets and were, had recognizable names during the Reformation and for a generation two or three, like if I don't know about them, my assumption tends to be, oh, everyone, they didn't give her a voice, but maybe she had a voice and had a voice for a couple generations. It just got lost that's a a different kind of mourning than someone deliberately put her works aside because she was female. How do you untangle like which that is? Yes.
1: I look for historical evidence and there are times where we know that things were suppressed. For instance, there were Protestant women actively publishing pamphlets in their own name In, for instance, uh, Geneva, Strasbourg, and other German and French-speaking cities. And then what happened is their own city councils suppressed, they confiscated the pamphlets or chastised the woman and said, there's one case, Marie Dantier, where they said, "Uh, we know your husband wrote it anyway, but since it's published under a woman's name, a woman has no business teaching in the church and, you know, First Timothy. So, pamphlets were confiscated, and in a few cases, a few were sort of, like, taken, you know, like, saved, kind of uh, taken away, or had already been distributed prior to the confiscation. Teresa Vavila, Avila, the Spanish nun, you know, revered as a saint during her lifetime, she wrote a meditation on the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. And she used a Spanish translation that was available, that had been available to her prior to that. But there was a at that time, a Catholic suspicion of the vernacular languages out of fear, you know, like, are they going to go Protestant? And priests need to do a better job of kind of keeping control of the interpretation. And so what happened is they knew the inquisitors were actually, they actually burned one of her works, but the nuns knew that that was going to happen. So they made a copy and gave it to a wealthy, noble, powerful woman for kind of safekeeping as it were. So there were times that that happened. Sometimes things were lost because of fire or war or just neglect. And so I think that a lot of times I, if I have no reason to think it's been deliberately burned or suppressed, I tend to think that it was just maybe forgotten or lost. And I on that side, but I don't always, you know, unless I've got some reason to have an opinion, I can't say definitively.
0: How on earth do you find these works? I mean, if there's one remaining copy and it is stowed away in someone's library, and then who knows what happens to the library as it gets passed around from generation to generation, how does it end up in your hands? Do you just know a lot of archivists and a lot of libraries around
1: the world? The thing that I do is I read everything and I keep notes on everything. So I've been uh, collecting names of women and names of documents probably since uh, around the time I was in seminary, around maybe 1988 and beyond. And what I do is I just read historians who say, oh, look what I found. And then I follow those footnotes. So I Mm -hmm. follow footnotes. A lot. And then other times I read the writings of men at particular times, uh, maybe from the time of the early church or the early rabbinic era. And then I scour those for any reference to women. And sometimes all we have is a little echo or fragment or statement about the woman or maybe a quote from her. I have
0: to say that as I looked through this book, I kept thinking one of the treasures about this book is the fact that the authors did not put strict boundaries on the women whose names and stories they preserved. That's its own kind of shaping history, right? When we choose who gets to be represented in the story— In this book, there are Christian and Jewish women. There are Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant women. They preserve the stories of women from every continent. Well, not Antarctica, but you know what I mean. So there are different ethnicities and a variety of perspectives coming from different voices. Along with the questions I asked about what the research for the book like this was like, I had to find out if there were women in certain parts of the world or certain parts of Christianity, like the Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant women, that were more challenging to find than others.
1: It was easier to find the European women, and especially the Western uh, European women. And there's, in the 19th century, there's so many British and U.S. American women, mostly white women, but not exclusively African-American women writing in English. That part... Marion and some of her colleagues found uh, found things in amazing ways, and so the a story I should tell is as they're trying to find 19th century women, they went to the catalog of the British Library and then typed in subject line like Bible, and then name all the first names of women they could find, like Carolyn and Sarah and Esther, and and a lot of times Mrs. that got oh, some hits. So those were easier to track down. We still haven't found them all. And because a fair amount of work has been done on African-American history, I was able to find, uh, Marianne and I were able to find some really important uh, 19th century African-American women preachers. But finding on the continent of Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, that's a bigger challenge, but I've... You know, we found examples of a woman, you know, uh, from the Congo, and then an Ethiopian woman, uh, Walata Petros. What I wanted to do is try to give a little bit more time where I could to the underrepresented voices. Hmm. Another real challenge is finding Asian women prior to the modern. Era, And there's, I think, a lot more that can be done in colonial records, and there it might be just finding fragments and echoes. And I don't know all the languages, so I had to rely on, you know, for the account of the Ethiopian woman's life, I needed to rely on a good translation of it. And so I think that this is right now in, you know, 2022, but in the years right before now, it's a good time to find so many things because there are people working on these women. A lot of times historians who may not be religious scholars and people who work in literature and post-colonial thought. So what Marian and I did, we tried to find women who aren't necessarily designated as sort of like biblical scholars by the people who study them, but we went in and looked for their biblical interpretation. And a lot of times that's just about all they were doing. So
0: interesting. As someone I really like, well, I'm Hebrew Bible-focused as a career, but I move into the Gospels because I'm so interested in that geography, that part of the world, and so have done a little bit of research on women within the context of Israelite society and women in Second Temple Judaism. And I was delighted by your section in late antiquity about Jewish women, because what everyone talks about and you find more often is that the rabbis hated women or the rabbis like kind of pushed them off to the side, but that's not necessarily true. So if we, if we speak just to the late antiquity period for a moment, One of the things that I've learned in my own research was just how much in first century Judaism or second temple Judaism, people learned together. So men and women gathered at the synagogue and learned together. And scrolls were a community, like the community owned the scroll and they would pass the scrolls and they would all memorize the scrolls. So there was a, a very communal aspect to learning scripture. You were talking in the book about women who owned books about scripture or scripture themselves. At what point do we move from this community-owning of scripture to an
1: individual-owning of scrolls or scripture? That is a fabulous question. As far as I'm aware, um, in the first century of the Common Era, it did seem to be very much community-owned or shared in some way. By the late 200s, early 300s, uh, we have references to women who owned Scrolls, or kept them in their own home, perhaps on behalf of the community. And uh, here I'm not um, talking about the very large scrolls of, uh, for instance, the Torah scrolls, but little things called volumens, uh, which were like little rolls, so that you could have a letter of Paul or a letter of this or that person or a small treatise. And so there are some references to women who may have been the custodians of it for the community, or they may have owned it themselves, but there's a case of some women in Turkey and in other parts of the world where they talk about having the scroll, and then if they go in one case, the women had to go into hiding in the mountains due to persecution, and they had left the scrolls behind, and that was just such agony to them that they didn't have the scrolls, and I think both as physical objects, but because it was really clear that these were women who were reading the scrolls. Hmm. This is at a time when the literacy rate may have been 5 to 10%, depending on whether you're urban or rural, but people were teaching their daughters how to read and in Alexandria, Egypt and some other places also how to write and to be scribes in the 300s the kind of the scholarly monk jerome is instructing a woman about how to teach her daughter to read and how to teach her to be a you know a, a worthy kind of moral upright person and says um, so you need to start by teaching her the songs, and she should memorize them. But she should also read, and then he gives the order of scripture. And last thing, of course, is Song of Songs, because you don't want the the sensual parts to uh, be distracting to her until she's ready to see that that's about the soul, <laughs> the soul, the individual. Don't spirit. scandalize her until she's a teenager. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes, but we do. So it seems to be kind of the two hundreds, three hundreds that I'm able to discern and so people have these roles and keep them in a cabinet or in a basket obviously there would be also you know different public libraries and community and monastery libraries that would have that but some individual book ownership
0: ah it's so interesting right and next week we get to hear the stories of
1: specific women including this one So it's in the early 380s of the Common Era, so late 4th century. It's a wealthy woman named Egeria. We're not quite sure if she's from, you know, like northern Spain or Gaul. But she and a retinue that seems to include some priests and some others uh, traveled to Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia, Palestine, looking for biblical sites. And it's almost like the Bible is kind of her guide. (music) Don't miss our conversation next week. It is
0: delightful to hear about the gumption of these women. Thank you for sitting with us around the podcast table. And a very special thanks goes again to my Patreon team. People like Carrie and Scott Jenkins, Linda Overall and Tammy O'Banion make this podcast sustainable for all of you. I could not do this without them. And you are welcome to join our team if you'd like. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the
1: world around you.